Well, brothers and sisters, would you grab a Bible and open it up? We're in the book of 2 Samuel this morning, and you're going to have to open up to two separate passages. So the first passage where you need to stick a finger this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 21, and then you need to flip a few more pages and then stick a finger in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And so while you do that, I want to make a few comments about the text in front of us. So chapters 21 through 24 of the book of 2 Samuel are the conclusion to the Samuel story. And so starting last January in 2022, we started this series on 1 and 2 Samuel. And so here in chapters 21 through 24, we have reached the conclusion of the Samuel story. Second comment is this, the material we find in this conclusion is not in in chronological order. So some of the material in these chapters in the conclusion are from the beginning of David's reign or the middle of David's reign and the end of David's reign. And this material, if it's not arranged chronologically, third comment, it's arranged in a literary structure called a chiasm. And so the material is arranged in an A, B, C, C, B, A format. And so think of a a symmetrical sandwich this morning. That's the way this conclusion is arranged. So on the outside of the sandwich, you've got two pieces of bread, and we have on the outside of the sandwich two stories about God's wrath and sin. And those are the two stories we're going to work through this morning. They're meant to be read together. Then inside the two pieces of bread, we have another layer to the sandwich, maybe cheese or something like that. And so that second layer inside of that, it's symmetrical as well. We have two texts about David's mighty men doing great deeds. And then at the very center of the chiasm, the very center of the sandwich, we have two songs by David. And fourth comment is this conclusion points us both backwards and forwards. This conclusion helps us to make sense of David's life and what David means for us as God's people and also This conclusion points us forward to David's greater son, to Jesus himself. And so this is what we're going to work through, chapters 21 through 24 in four sermons. So this is the beginning of the conclusion, the beginning of the end. So let's read God's word together. Starting in chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. So hear the word of God. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he has put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement? that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither it is for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord." And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of his oath of the Lord that was between them. 
between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul of Gilboa. On Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Now turn to chapter 24 with me, verses 1 through 25. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Gadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and they came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the city of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So, they, so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Jerusalem there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, And the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough, now stay your hand. 
And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded, and when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Our Father, we have read your word this morning, and we ask that your word would do its work in our hearts. Our Father, we want to deal with what is real and true, and these two stories teach us what is real and true, what sin deserves and the way out from our sin. And so we ask now that as this word is expounded and preached to us, that you would lead us to see Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. What we find in chapters 21 and 24 is disturbing. The seven sons of Saul are killed in a gruesome way. It's not entirely clear how they were killed. They were either hung or dismembered or impaled upon a crude spike or maybe the combination of a few of those. There is Rizpah, the mother of these sons, two of them, and she kept constant vigil over these dead bodies for what could have been up to months of time. She kept vigil over these boys keeping the birds of the air and the, the beasts of the field from eating their rotting flesh. There is a plague, a plague with no cure, and it's ravaging the land of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Men of Israel are struck, and they're struck with surprising speed. Some 70,000 men were killed in the time frame of at most three days. And just let your imagination catch up with you and these two stories. Just go sit with Rizpah for a moment and when you go sit with a Rizpah for a moment, immediately you're confronted with the smell, and it's the smell of rotting flesh. And you're confronted with the sight, and the sight is this, the daily sight of gore. Even more, you're confronted with grief. What you see and what you smell are the children you bore. Or go survey the land of Israel. You can go to the north or the south or anywhere in between from Dan to Beersheba, the whole length of the land of Israel. And what you find is sorrow. 70,000 men of Israel are dead in the time frame of three days. There are fathers and brothers and uncles and grandpas and sons all missing everywhere in the land. Funeral after funeral after funeral. But what makes these scenes even more disturbing 
And we ask ourselves, can it be any more disturbing than this? Is their relationship to God? The deaths of the seven sons of Saul, the death of these 70,000 men, it's no accident, it's no tragedy. It's not an accident. The seven sons of Saul were killed where? In the presence of Yahweh. Chapter 21, verse 6. And the 70,000 men were struck down by who? By the messenger, by the angel of the Lord. Chapter 24, verse 16. If you were to treat these two stories as a crime scene and you were to put your forensic hat on, you'd find that both of these scenes are covered with the fingerprints of the Lord. And so what these two stories and what these disturbing details do is alert us to a problem. It alerts us to Israel's problem and ours problem. Israel's problem isn't the Philistines, nor is it drought or or famine. Rather, Israel's problem, as we see it presented between these two stories, is God. And to be precise, Israel's problem is God's anger. Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, speak of God like this. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The poetry we find in Psalm 7 is not hyperbole. God's sword is indeed sharp, and it's deadly. We can just survey the the book we've worked through in these, these months, this past year. Just ask Eli and his two sons. Is the sword of God sharp? Eli and Eli will say, yes, it is. These, this family refused to repent. And what happened? In one day, the whole family was wiped out. We read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Or consider the 30,000 men who died at the battle of Aphek. These men, all of Israel, refused to humble themselves before the Lord. And, and what happened? 30,000 men fell at the hand of the Philistines. We read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Or remember the men of Beth Shemesh and, and the man named Uzzah. They improperly handled the ark of God. They thought they could, they could handle the ark the way they wanted to. But they couldn't and God's anger was kindled and they were all struck down. We read about that in 1 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 6. Or, or remember Saul. Saul, the first king of Israel, set apart by God to rule and reign over his people. And what did we see in Saul? He was a stubborn man. And whether for selfish gain or out of some sort of fear because of the people of God, he refused and he resisted the word of God again and again and again. And so what did the Lord do? Well, he stripped Saul bare. First he took his kingdom from him, then he took his sanity and his ability to rule, and then finally on that lonely hill of Gilboa, he took his honor, dignity, and his life. The Lord stripped him utterly bare. And though we might not like like it, though we might not like what we see in this book, these stories force us to, to reckon with God as he really is. Not as we might imagine him or imagine him or think him to be, but as he really and truly is. And this is where this text, these two texts meet us. So hear this, your big problem in life is not your finances. Your big problem in life is not your health or your job or your lack of job or your relationships or lack of relationships. Your big problem in life is God. And to be precise, your big problem in life is God's anger because of your sin. And so for tracking along this morning, this should raise a question in our hearts and our souls. 
well, what can be done about this? What can be done about God's anger? Can it be turned away? Can it be assuaged? Can it be satisfied? And before we get an answer, and these two stories do give us an answer, we need to do the uncomfortable work of slogging through sin and terror and anger in chapters 21 and 24. So let's do that. Let's start in chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there, and we're going to work through the text. And so in chapter 21, we find that a long and stubborn famine has settled over the land. And for three years, there was little or no rain, which meant there was little or no food, which, which meant that there was a lot of aching and hungry stomachs in Israel. And this is the stuff of national crisis. This is something that could cause a kingdom to crumble. And so David did what? He sought the face of the Lord. And David sought the face of the Lord, not because he was a superstitious man or an uneducated man, because he was a a man who read his Bible. And David's Bible told him that famines happened to Israel because God sent them to judge them for their unrepentant sin. And in this case, there was unforgiven sin. Look at verse 1 in chapter 21. The Lord speaks to David, revealing the issue There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Saul is like a bad taste that you can't get out of your mouth. Even here at the end of the book with Saul long dead, Saul is causing trouble for Israel because of what he did to the Gibeonites way back when God's anger is resting upon Israel and causing trouble for Israelites. And understanding what Saul did to the Gibeonites is a bit of a puzzle because the story isn't given to us in First and Second Samuel, but we can try to piece some of it together. So the Gibeonites, who were they? Well, they weren't Israelites, but they were about as close to being an Israelite as you could have possibly been without being an Israelite. They lived among Israel for generations, and they did so because during the time of conquest, so you have to go back to the book of Joshua, The people of Israel were coming in and making holy war on the land of Israel. And what the Gibeonites did is they heard what Israel was doing and they played a trick on them. They pretended they were were foreigners from afar. And Israel believed them and they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. And the Lord honored that covenant and protected the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were to live among the Israelites for generation after generation after generation. And so why did Saul put the Gibeonites to death? They're bound in covenant together and before the Lord. Why did Saul do this? Well, I think the answer is simple. I think it's greed and the desire for more. You can just imagine this playing out in Saul's mind. He, He looks at the Gibeonites, he reads the story in Joshua, and he thinks, these people shouldn't be here in the land of Israel. They're taking up valuable space and valuable cities. And, and the people of God, they're, they're growing. The, the people of Benjamin, they're growing. And we need places to expand and cities to flourish in. The answer is easy. Let's get rid of the Gibeonites. Let's destroy them as they were meant to be destroyed. And so what did Saul do? Well, he shed innocent blood. He broke the sixth commandment over and over and over again. Even more, he broke the third commandment, which is more dire. He broke the covenant of the Lord, treating the Lord's name as if it meant nothing, taking the Lord's name in vain. And so there's chapter 21. So we see the sin of Saul. But Saul's sin isn't the only one we need to see. David sins also in our two stories. And David's sin, though it doesn't look as bad as Saul's or feel as bad as Saul's, brings about a more severe judgment upon the people of Israel. So let's look at chapter 24 now. 
And so if you look at chapter 24, verses 1 through 2, we get this set up for the sin. The text says this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. And so we see in these two verses that David's sin doesn't appear out of nowhere. Because the Lord was angry with Israel about their sin, the Lord uses David and his sin as an instrument of judgment against Israel. The text says, the Lord incited David against them. Now we ask, well, why was taking a census a sin? And again, this is a bit of a mystery The text doesn't exactly tell us. Censuses in and of themselves were a lawful thing to do. God gave instructions in his word about how a census was to be done and and how it was to be administered throughout the land of Israel. And so we can take a few guesses of why David's actions were sinful. Perhaps David's actions were sinful because he didn't perform the census according to the word of God. Perhaps David did it wrong and he didn't pay attention to God's word and now God was bringing trouble upon the land of Israel for it. Or maybe it had nothing to do with how the census was done. Maybe it was about David's heart. Maybe he did this sentence because he was lacking faith in God and he was putting his trust in what? A big army. How many men do I have? What resources do I have? Can I trust that? Can I rest easy? Or maybe it was another matter of the heart. Maybe it was a matter of pride. Maybe David was taking ownership of the people of God and boasting in what he had as the king of Israel. But whatever it was, the text doesn't wait around and tell us it was sin. And so after the numbers come in from the census, David's heart does what? It it strikes him. And so David speaks to the Lord, confessing his sin in verse 10. He says this, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David knows what he has done is sinful. And the Lord responds, and the Lord's response grieves David's heart deeply, verse 14. And so the Lord sets before David three options. It's a sort of choose-your-own-adventure judgment story. Option one is a famine lasting three years. Option two is three years of retreat. Armies will pursue you and pick you off as you run. No rest for you. And the third option is three days of plague by the hand of the Lord. Now, none of these options are good. They're all deadly. Death by hunger, death by sword, death by disease. They're all bad. But David reasons with faith, and he reasons with all the faith he can muster, and he says this, choosing the third. Verse 14. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So David says, I'm taking the third option, three days of plague, and I'm doing it because the Lord is going to do this directly to us, and I believe there's mercy in God than in anything else. Then we hear the results of what the Lord does. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. So we can take a step back from these two stories. And there we have it. We've got the muck of sin and we've waded through it. There's David's sin and Saul's sin and Israel's sin. It's all before us. And what has happened because of their sin? The Lord is angry with them because of it. And he is judging them because of it. 
And so we ask our question, well, what can be done about the Lord's anger? Is there any way to turn it aside? And I I told you at the beginning that these two texts give us an answer, but we have to prepare ourselves for the answer that these two texts give us because the answer isn't fun or, or nice or light or easy. The answer that these texts provide is a, it's a bloody answer and a costly answer. Because you have to understand something about God. God's anger isn't something that can be manipulated. It isn't something you can wait out in hope that it will dissipate over time. We can't say, God is a bit ornery right now with me and I'm just going to wait him out and his anger will subside. Maybe he's hungry or something. No, God's anger is perfectly righteous. It's bound by justice. Even more, it's unmutable. It is fixed and as sure as the sun is in the sky. And therefore, it must be satisfied. It will be satisfied in some way or another. And so we ask, well, what is the answer to this problem? Well, let's go back to the stories. Let's go to chapter 21 first. So we go back to chapter 21. Famine has taken the land three years And now because the Lord has spoken to David, David knows the reason for it. Saul has sinned against the Gibeonites. And so with that knowledge, David asks the question we've been asking throughout this sermon. And so he summons the Gibeonites and David asks them, verse 3, he says this, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? David wants to know, how might this wrath be averted and turned away from Israel and from him? And David gets an answer from the Gibeonites, and it's, a, it's an unnerving answer. It's disturbing. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Gibeonites said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at the Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. That's unnerving, that's disturbing. And certainly as we take in those two verses, we we think, well, David would never agree to such a thing. This is outlandish. But then he does, he hands over to the Gibeonites seven sons of Saul, and then the Gibeonites take those seven sons and they slaughter those seven sons. And as we take in these two verses, we think, well, certainly this wouldn't satisfy the anger of the Lord. It seems so outrageous, it seems so unjust, it seems so vindictive and brutal. But it does. The story concludes with these words. After the bones of these seven sons and the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan are all gathered together and buried in Saul's ancestral home, the text ends with this. Verse 14. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Now, when you read commentators and interpreters of these verses, they squirm, and they squirm back and forth, and they're trying to give answers. And some answers can be given as we think about this text. I don't think any of this was unjust. The sin was not Saul's sin alone, but it belonged to Saul and also his house. If you read carefully, verse 21, verse, chapter 21, verse 1 makes it clear. Saul and his house sinned against the Gibeonites. Nor was it outrageous. You just have to think for a moment, what did Saul do against the Gibeonites? He waged a holy war. He was waging a genocide against the Gibeonites, seeking to extinguish them. This seems like actually a measured response in reply. Seven sons, genocide. But here's the thing. No answer, no explanation can fix the story for us. 
No answer makes it palatable or comfortable, and no answer should. Saul and his house sinned against the Gibeonites. God sent a famine. Seven sons of Saul were hung, and then God, and only then, after the death of those seven sons, responded to the plea of the land. And we see this very clearly in the text. Sin demands the death of the sinner. And we see it in the text. There is only one way to remove the curse of God from the land, and that was through the shedding of blood, and not just any blood in this case, but blood from the house of Saul, specifically human blood. Human blood. It seems outrageous to us, but it's the truth. Only after human blood was shed did God remove his anger from the land. Now look at chapter 24. In chapter 24, the scene is dramatic. 70,000 men are already dead. The angel of the Lord has been moving through Dan to Beersheba, through the length of the land, and now the angel of the Lord comes to Jerusalem, the most populous city within Israel. And the angel is ready to strike the city and bring death upon the city. And if you have your biblical imagination working, it's like Genesis 22 all over again. Do you remember that scene? Abraham is there with with Isaac. Isaac is bound and his knife is stretched out and he's ready to plunge his knife into his son. It's just like that all over again. Here's the angel of the Lord. His arm is outstretched, ready to bring havoc upon this city. But before the angel strikes, before the knife drops, the Lord stops it. Verse 16. The Lord says this to the angel, it is enough, now stay your hand. David was right, this God has mercy. But there's so much for us to see here, for in the midst of this mercy, David does something. David sees the angel of the Lord doing his deadly work, and what a terrible sight that would have been to see, to have that perception of watching the angel of the Lord move about the land of Israel, bringing destruction, and out of a love for his people, the sheep that God had given to him, David doesn't run from the anger of the Lord, he doesn't hide from the anger of the Lord, but what does he do? He offers himself up to the anger of the Lord. David goes to the Lord and he begs, Oh Lord, would the anger fall upon me and upon my house and not upon these sheep? And David speaks to the Lord like that, believing in the mercy of the Lord, and then the Lord gives David instructions. At this place of mercy... This place where the Lord stayed the hand of the angel. In fact, if you know your Bibles well, this is the very place where the Lord stayed the hand of Abraham. Even more, the very place where Solomon's temple was constructed. The Lord gives David these instructions. Build an altar and offer sacrifices. And that's what David does. He buys this plot of land and he builds an altar. He makes offering to the Lord. And the story ends with these words. Verse 25. The same ending from verse 21, same exact language. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. And so what's the answer? Well, from these two stories, as we see them at work, we see three strands to the answer. First, we see there has to be some sort of holy place. God has to be present in some special way for sin to be taken care of. We see it in the first story. The seven sons of Saul were hung where? They were hung before the Lord on a mountain. Chapter 21, verse 6. We see it in the second story as well. David purchased the the threshing floor of Arana. 
The very place where God provided a ram for Abraham and the place where thousands upon thousands of rams and bulls and lambs would be offered up to God in Solomon's temple. The place matters. There must be a holy place if God's anger is to be dealt with. Second, we see there has to be a mediator. There has to be someone who goes before the Lord and and stands before the Lord in the stead of the people of God and says this, please let your hand be against me, not against these sheep. And third, there must be a sacrifice. Blood must be shed if God's anger is to be dealt with. Death must be exacted. God requires it. And so we see these three stands in chapter 21 and chapter 24. And as we move from chapter 21 and 24 to our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that these three strands, as we see them in these chapters, are taken up and and wound and bound and woven together into one strong strand. Now hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from this text. First, the Lord Jesus has gone into a holy place. Now I'm not talking about a structure made with human hands like Moses' tabernacle or Solomon's temple, or the the temple that Herod built. These were only signs and copies of a heavenly reality. Our Jesus has entered into, once and for all, the, the holy place, the holy place, the very presence of God himself. Second, we say this, the Lord Jesus Christ is our mediator between God and man. Like David, our Jesus spoke this, please let your hand be against me. But we understand that Jesus spoke better than David. David's sin is what caused chapter 24. He sinned against the Lord, but our mediator, he is a mediator that has never sinned. His his life is unstained and, and free from all sin. Even more, as we hear the Lord Jesus speak these words in his own way, please let your hand be against me. These were not empty words for Jesus. They were not just a, an empty offer to God, but they were action. Because as we see Jesus in the gospel, He plunged himself into the fierce wrath of God. He was fully immersed. Think of a baptism. Jesus was plunged all the way into the wrath of God. And third, our Jesus, the mediator who entered into the holy place, he entered there not with the blood of bulls or goats or any sort of animal. Rather, he made atonement through what? Through the shedding of his own blood. Someone must die for sin. And Jesus presents his own life in the stead of sinners. And so we see, as we meditate on chapter 21 and 24, as we connect it to the person and work of Jesus, that the cost is bloody. It's so bloody. So how do we apply this to our lives? We've got chapter 21 and 24 before us. We've made the connection to Jesus. Now, what does this mean for us? How do we live in light of this truth? Well, here's an application for you. Brothers, sisters, every time you sin, whether you think it's a big sin or a small sin or a sin somewhere in between, whether it's a sin that that shakes your soul or a sin that doesn't even cause you to raise an eyebrow anymore, you need to say this to yourself. Someone must die for this. Blood must be shed for this. A life must be taken. And to further this application, you must ask yourself another question. You have to ask this question, who will die for this sin? Who's going to die for it? 
Now, this is a question we try to evade, and we're really good at it. We're professionals at it. The knowledge of sin appears. It, it pops up in our hearts and our minds. Our consciences are at work, and what do we do? We, we stamp it down. We push it down. We want to get rid of it. We try to distract ourselves and move on with our lives. Who's going to die for this? And we want to push that away. But here's the thing. Whether you skirt the question or ignore the question, The question still stands and hangs over your life for every sin you've committed. Who will die for that sin? And it's at this point that you have a choice to make. Every time you sin, there's a question you are confronted with. What will you do with that sin? Will you hold on to that sin and die in that sin and die for that sin? That option is before you. You can take it, but know this. It is a bitter choice to make. Just go sit with Rizpah, that mother who lost her two sons. Smell the rotting flesh. Look at the gore. Take in the grief. That is the lot of all of those who hold on to their sin. Saul and his household held on to their sin, and they would not let go of it. And they died in it, and they died for it. And that's a lot of all of those who hold on to their sin. But we need to be convinced of this. There is another option, a better option. You don't have to hold on to your sin. You don't have to die in it or for it. Instead, you can take your sin to the one who died for sinners. You can take your heavy load of sin and and put it on Christ's shoulders, those shoulders that bore a cross. You can take your offense and you can nail it to his cross. You can take all of your guilt, the heaping mounds of it, and seal it up in his tomb once and for all, and it is gone. What can you do with your sin? You can take it to Christ, and that's what the gospel offers us in the preaching of the gospel. Take your sin to the one who died for sinners. And so this is the application Every time you sin, whether you think it's a big sin or a small sin or a sin somewhere in between, whether it's a sin that shakes your soul or you don't even lift an eyebrow at it anymore, you need to ask yourself this or say this to yourself. Someone must die for this. And if you know Jesus, and if you're living by faith in Jesus, you can say this. Jesus has died for this. Jesus' blood was shed for this big sin and this small sin. Jesus did it all for my sake, that God's anger would be turned away from me. So hear the call of the gospel. Go to the one who shed his blood for sinners. And there is forgiveness and life and peace and reconciliation and joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess that these two chapters are like blunt force trauma. They don't hide anything. They don't spruce anything up or make it more palatable. They show us what our sins deserve. But we are so thankful for your grace and mercy in Jesus that a mediator has come and he has pled for our sake. And now we ask, would you give us faith that we might take all of our sin to him who died for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.